In the name of our Heavenly Father, sitting serenely on his throne, in the name of Christ Jesus, his Son, the one who was and is and is to come, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, whose wisdom and energy have connected us to the very throne room of heaven itself and have extended to you and to me personally an invitation to a wedding feast at which we will be both guests and bride. My dear friends, how many of you have seen or heard George Friedrich Handel's great oratorio, Messiah, in person, live? Raise your hand if you have ever seen it. Well, not a lot, maybe 10. Uh, I kind of wish I was one of you that didn't raise your hand because you have a treat coming that if you, God allows you to live long enough, I hope that you do that before you die. It will be a transformational experience. It is an oratorio, which is a musical sort of religious opera, except that it doesn't have any talk in it. There's no dialogue. There's no costumes. There's not really any characters. It is just 53 songs in a row. Now, you might think, geez, who has the patience to sit through 53 straight songs? Holy smokes. Um, you'll, you'll get a flattened out backside after sitting that long, just listening to one song after another. Uh, you will not have a problem. I, I want to assure you, it, the time will fly. It, in song, tells the story of creation and God's building of his world. The, it's in three parts. The last, uh, excuse me, the first part is about the Old Testament and prophecies of the coming Savior. The second part is of the life of Christ and his triumphant a victory on the cross, and the third part is the resurrection and a look ahead to Christ's return and glory. Handel wrote it, these 53 songs, and my mind hurts just thinking of it, in a little over three weeks. That is a stupendous human achievement. I can't hardly believe it. Three weeks. You could maybe, in three weeks, you might be able to write one song. He not only conceived of all 53, but he wrote them for voices, and he scored them for orchestra too in that three weeks. It just makes my head just spin to, to think of the prodigious talent in his brain. Handel was a German who was living in England, working for the English court, but he staged the Messiah in Dublin, in Ireland of all places, as a fundraiser for a hospital. And uh, people kind of liked it, like they thought, well, this was good, and then it did not get a huge stir. I think they were just so blown away, they, didn't, they couldn't process it. And, it, you know, sometimes, you, you, have you ever run into something that's really, really, really good, but you didn't quite get it the first time, and it's like the fourth time you experienced it is when it really blows you away? Well, Hendel was a little disappointed. A year later, he staged it again in England, in London, and this time went a little bit better, but he got some kind of negative reviews in the press too. And, and he put it on a couple of times, and then he gave it a rest. But then it, like people kind of got it by then, and when he, about six years later, staged it again, now it was like coming home, and they got enthusiastic reviews. And the fame of this oratorio has just built and built and built and built. And now it is uh, just one of, known as one of the great 
works of Christian music all around the world, and most people know some of the songs from it. Uh, the most famous of them all comes at the end of part two, after the triumphant news of Christ's uh, victory on the cross, and it's called Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. There's a story that King George II was in attendance at one of those London performances and that he stood up at that point, maybe because he had a cramp in his leg or maybe because the music was just that good. But when the king rises, everybody has to rise. And ever since that time, everybody stands up whenever the Hallelujah Chorus is sung. So I'm giving you a little tip. If you ever uh, see a performance of Messiah or even see hallelujah, sung in a choir concert. Be prepared to flex your, your leg muscles because you'll probably have to stand up at that point. Everybody, even if you haven't ever seen it uh, live, you all know the hallelujah chorus, right? You know how it goes. Hallelujah. Sing it with me. Hallelujah. 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 Keep going. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. One more, keep going. For the Lord God omnipotent reign. Okay, that's far enough. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that a great song? It makes you want to jump for joy for God, doesn't it? Once it's like an earworm, you get it in your head and you can't get it out. And that song is the most famous of all 53. I'd like to talk to you about the biblical text from which that's taken. Did you know that the word hallelujah, or it, that's the Hebrew way of spelling it, it's Greek and Latin cousin, starts with the letter A in France, alleluia, same word, just different languages. And we have them both in English, hallelujah with an H and alleluia with an A. It's only found in one chapter of the Bible. Only one place has the word hallelujah. And in fact, it has it four times. And we're going to savor them all today. This is a hallelujah message today. And I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and, uh, or your smart device if you prefer that method and go to Revelation 19. This is the only place in the New Testament that that word is used. Here it's used four times. This is the whole inventory of hallelujahs in Scripture. But, not quite true, because we've got, its, it, we've got that word in translated form in the Old Testament. The Hebrew name for God, his proper name, that's untra excuse me, untranslatable, uh, is four consonants, J-H-V-H. And uh, Consonants, vowels had to be added to those consonants later on by textual editors. So sometimes it's expanded to Jehovah. That's where the word Jehovah comes from. Or more likely, as it was done by the ancient Jewish scribes, Yahweh. But that J-A-H um, prefix, that's a, a way of abbreviating the name of God. When you see that in somebody's proper name, it always refers to the Lord. Uh, and when you see it in a word like hallelujah, that J-A-H means the Lord. And the Hebrew verb hallel means to praise. So when you put a U at the end, that's a plural imperative. I'm going to go all nerdy, grammar nerdy on you right now. That means all y'all 
praise Yah, the Lord. That phrase is used frequently in the Old Testament, abundantly in the Psalms, and insanely abundantly in what are called the Hallels, the Psalms of praise that were sung at Passover time. Psalm 111 to Psalm 118 is packed wall to wall with hallelujahs, although we have it in our Bibles, it just comes out as praise the Lord because they translated it. Here, coming from the very throne room of heaven, we've got uh, the Hebrew word taken just as it is. So let's, without further ado, take a look at it. And here is hope and encouragement for people who have to live in a crazy world, a broken world, a dangerous world, a sickly world, a violent world, a dying world, an angry world, a scary world. And that's what the rest of the book of Revelation is about. This is the shout of relief when it's over, but it isn't over yet. I want to give you a little free clue that it took me years to figure out about Revelation. It's a hard book. If you don't like reading in it because you can't understand it, I totally get it and don't blame you. I remember feeling like I really ought to read the whole New Testament when I was a teenager and plowed through it, and I was more confused after than before. I, like My Bible knowledge went backwards rather than forwards, because I just thought, this makes no sense at all. This is just a wild collection of nightmares, and I don't get it. Here's the secret. It's not linear. It's not telling you a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'm going to show you with my hands the shape of Revelation. It has a beginning and then four big loops and, and a post what do you call it, a postlog or a postscript and a little ending, the happy ending in heaven. It doesn't go in a straight line. It goes in four huge wheels or circles basically telling the same story over and over again just with different metaphors and picture language. But it's the same thing. It's not telling you different things. These aren't different eras. These are not referring to different aspects. It's the same story. And these are the three stories that are told over and over. The first three chapters are easy to understand. You have John gets to see a vision of the resurrected Jesus. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. In chapters 2 and 3, he writes seven postcards to the churches that were uh, some doing well, some not. He gave them all report cards, the churches he used to supervise on his overseer's circuit ride from his base in Ephesus. Now because he's on, on the island of Patmos in exile, he can't see them in person anymore. So he writes to them some words of encouragement, some scoldings. That's chapters 2 and 3. Again, you can get those. They've got a few obscure references, but you can figure those out. It's, then comes chapter 4, which is a beautiful little interlude of the serenity of the throne room of God in heaven. Yeah, okay, we can get that. That makes some sense. But then come the four loops. And the, one thing you learn about Revelation is it's all wired in numbers. God uses numbers to tell a story, and his favorite number in Revelation is seven. Seven is the number of God's covenant. Whenever you see seven, it refers to God's working out his agenda 
to bring salvation to people. Seven is, is a, a sacred, it's a holy number. So the four loops each have seven uh, episodes in them. So it's like 28 in all. It's like the whole middle of Revelation from uh, right where we're starting today, from chapter 5 through chapter 18, is a, a drama in four acts, each with seven episodes. So it's like 28 episodes. And they all tell the same three stories over and over and over again, just with different uh, dramatic impressions to get your attention and stick in your mind. One, the fury and wrath of God is going to come pouring out of heaven, smashing down on Satan, on the demons, and everyone who has joined their rebellion with a special attention being given to Satan's human assistance. And they have various metaphors for those human assistants. There's the beast of the, of the sea, which represents government attacks and military attacks. In other words, outward attacks on the church. Then there's the beast of the earth, the rot from within. Uh, the church, God foresaw, was going to get rotten from the inside out. And the church itself was going to be a persecutor of the very believers that they were supposed to nourish. God hates that when it happened. Jesus grieved over Jerusalem and said, was there ever a prophet that you did not put to death? How often I tried to gather you like, uh, into my, my embrace, into faith in me, like a hen gathers her. Remember what he, beautiful little image used? Like a hen gathers her chicks. But you didn't want to. So Jerusalem would be an example of that. The powerful structure of the medieval church was so powerful, too powerful, it put to death people who uh, dared to resist it in any kind of way. John Huss burnt at the stake, 1415. Savonarola, when Luther, Martin Luther was in grade school, the Italian monk who dared try to, uh, to dispute with the Catholic Church uh, was burnt at the stake in Florence. William Tyndale, um, was uh, the tr a translator of the Bible, never assumed that, that, was, that everybody approved of that. He was driven into exile from England, arranged to have his English Bibles printed in, in Germany and in Belgium, was tracked down and found in Antwerp, was strangled, and then his dead body was burnt at a stake in the public square of Antwerp in Belgium. How could it be that the very church itself becomes a persecutor of the truth? Uh, and the, the book of Revelation has furious, angry metaphors, calls that uh, when the church acts like that, God says, you're like Babylon, oppressor of the people. You're a prostitute. You're a beast. And Revelation 18, right before we start today, says Babylon has fallen. God brought her down. Her proudness is brought down to the dust. And that was mighty good news. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ means that uh, the believers are safe now. And what that did was it's cut loose roars of rejoicing, worship, and praise in heaven. And that's where our story begins today. Sorry for the long buildup, but uh, I think chapter 19 will make a lot more sense to you if you know what it, or what it is you're reading. So now the four loops are done. The seven seals have been opened. The seven trumpets have been blown 
the seven visions have been seen by John and the seven bowls of the wrath of God have been dumped out one by one by the angels. So 28 disasters in a row. Mostly, there's a couple of bits of good news, but mostly bad news. Oh, and by the way, I said three things, I only mentioned one. So wrath of God coming down on people. Second, the believers are going to get hurt by the collateral damage. We're going to suffer along, as, as the wrath of God is, is being allowed to smite earth, we're going to be hurt as well. We're collateral damage, and we're in the war. But third, there is always, even through the 28 nightmares uh, scenarios, there's always hope being given. Hang on, believers. Hang on. Hang on, believers. And little, there's little glimpses of heaven, and then comes the, the bad news again. So here's the good news. This is what heaven looks like, knowing that Christ is alive and has ascended and taken his throne. A great multitude in heaven is shouting, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And you might feel small and alone. You might feel like you're on that down escalator trying to work your way up or going against the grain. Man, I tell you, I get it if that's how you feel more and more. I feel like uh, back in my day, um, the older boomers like us felt like we're the counterculture, um, that we're trying to bring about some refreshment and change in America, and uh, we're going against this mass culture, and we're, we're, we're setting up a different way to think and live. Well, I think everything has flipped. I think the world is now in that majority, and to actually live a Christian life is now sort of a countercultural thing, isn't it? You can hardly even open your mouth and say Christian things without being shut up and shamed in some kind of way. If you try it at work or you go into the public square or go on social media uh, or you comment on something in a magazine or newspaper, you will get shamed for uh, saying what you think are biblical truths. It's good to know that all the believers together are a great multitude that can set up quite a racket and their first hymn of praise is to celebrate the victory over the uh, Babylon, the beast of the earth, uh, the uh, great prostitute, all metaphors for the corrupt church organization, that the believers have survived the, the, the um, cruelties of the very organizations that were supposed to nurture them. They shouted again, verse 3, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. See, we're not allowed to take vengeance ourselves. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, but not you. But that doesn't mean vengeance is bad. It's just that you can't be trusted with it because your brain is so foggy and your emotions are all over the place. But uh, Revelation chapter 6 says the souls and spirits of the martyrs, people who've been killed for their faith, are, are hiding under the altar in heaven, patiently waiting, like they've taken refuge there because they're scared. Finally, when are you going to avenge our blood, Lord? When? And he says, be patient and wait. It's, they are looking ahead now and, saying, and seeing with joy that their oppressor has been brought down. A third hallelujah, the 24 elders. This is the leaders of the Old Testament patriarchs, the 12 patriarchs uh, of Reuben and all the other sons of Israel and the apostles, the 12 apostles added together means uh, the leadership of all of the believers, Old and New Testaments. 
The four living creatures is a metaphor for the cherubim or the archangels. These, this is the supreme high command of the angel armies. And they jointly are worshiping, falling down, not because they tripped, but to make their faces low, which is how you show humility before someone greater than you. And they worshiped God seated on the throne and cried, Amen, another Hebrew word. It means the truth. Amunah in Hebrew means the truth. Hallelujah for the third time. Then a voice, which appears to be Christ, comes from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then a fourth hallelujah comes. I, don't, I mean, you can figure that third one out. I don't have to comment on that. But the fourth one needs a little unpacking. It was a roar. There was so much praise going on, it sounded like you were uh, standing next to Niagara Falls as that roar and pounding of all that water make, half deafens you. That's what the worship in the throne room of heaven sounds like. You will not be alone. You will be side by side with millions of other Christians of every race, tribe, language, and people from the past, present, and even future children yet to be born. We're all going to be together forever uh, without ever any fear again, enjoying uh, the connection that we will enjoy from people all over the world. And it will be such a large group, you'll be half deaf from the praises bursting out of everybody's mouth. It's like a roar of rushing waters, like Niagara Falls, and like loud peals of thunder booming and shouting hallelujah so loud. Uh, but you'll be glad. For the Lord God Almighty, uh, Handel's Messiah says, omnipotent reigneth. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. The wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. That fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I'm not sure which version of the Bible you're using. Uh, my NIV, I'm not sure if your Bible says righteous acts. I have some uh, bones to pick with that translation. A better translation is fine linen stands for the righteousness of the saints. See, what, what makes you clean and look decent and look clean enough to step into heaven and smell good enough so that the stank of your sins does not drive God away from you is not what you have done. It's not your deeds. It's not the righteous deeds you have done. It's the holiness you have by being pronounced not guilty and your faith in it. You are saved not by your works, Scripture says, but by grace through your faith. That's how you get the beautiful clothes on. And then it closes with, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's one of the benedictions in the book of Revelation. Okay, guess. How many benedictions are there in the book of Revelation? I gave you a tip before. How many? Seven. This is number four. There are seven blessings. And it's kind of funny because it's like blessed is everybody whose mailbox ended up with a save-the-date card, uh, which is not quite enough. I mean, every wedding invitation has four letters at the bottom, doesn't it? In fact, there's extra. A wedding invitation is always fat because there's all kinds of stuff that comes tumbling out, right? Have you gotten, ever gotten a wedding invitation? What all falls out of there? 
the the return envelope because you have to do the four letters RSVP what does RSVP stand for there we go we got a few French speakers here for some insane reason the people who speak the English language cannot be bothered with English when it comes to responding to a formal invitation we have to speak French when we sneeze we have to speak German Gesundheit when you dance the ballet you must learn to speak French when you play the piano you have to learn Italian because all of the words on sheet music that explain how fast or slow you go or how loud or soft you go is you're, you're forced to do it in Italian I, can, I, I don't know I, somebody the owner of the language decided all this long ago and decided that when you get an invitation you have to responde s'il vous plaît please respond because the the bride and groom get really cranky if you don't because they don't know when they're shelling out 50 60 70 80 bucks a plate are you going to show up and eat this expensive food or are they going to pay for it and you're not even there to eat it if you're not going to come maybe they can give that plate to somebody else so always send it back but especially send it back to God because you've blessed are you you've been given the invitation to the feast but man you got to say yes to it it sits in your lap but if you just gawk at it or say someday I ought to really think about that all of a sudden the bridegroom is going to be here if you don't have oil in your lamp another metaphor Jesus himself used the, the circus is going to pass you by you will be standing on the outside looking in hammering on the door out in the darkness saying hey I was on the roster of St. Marcus Lutheran Church you owe me let me in and the bridegroom will say I didn't know you you never accepted my invitation I never heard from you what are you going to do with my invitation so this is your day to say yes Lord yes many of you know um, my son Sam uh, he is you, some of you knew him as a kid and you saw glimpses of him as he was at the seminary he's now a pastor well uh, big news uh, he and Tracy his girlfriend his patient long-suffering girlfriend are actually engaged going to be married in April uh, which is pretty exciting and Tracy is so excited she got herself a custom coffee mug and on the side of it it says I said yes and don't have to say anymore everybody gets what her coffee mug is all about she's insanely excited to plan her wedding but she had to be asked and she had to say yes what do you think it would have done to Sam's heart if he goes through this elaborate rigmarole another time I'll tell you what insane rigmarole he went through uh, to propose if he gets down on one knee I mean he did he actually did that mushy stuff of the kneeling thing and he's got the ring and everything what if he offers it to her and she says well um, maybe I'll let me think about it um, I'll let you know it would have crushed his heart wouldn't it multiply that by a million and that is how it crushes the heart of our Lord to invite you to the coolest thing ever this is I, let me just wrap this up with talking about the metaphor of a wedding 
It's a little weird, isn't it? Especially for all us guys. Like, man, I, I bet you can't wait to go to heaven so you can be a bride. And we're thinking, hmm, yeah, okay, like, rather be a superhero, I'd rather be a, I'd rather uh, be a star athlete or rather be a CEO of a company or something. You sure, a bride? And like God says, let me explain this. It's not that you literally are going to be married to the Son of God, but you're going to be bonded to him. He's going to provide for you and invite you to come and live in his house. You are going to get to wear the holy robes that he has bought for you. The beautiful holy robes you get to wear in heaven were purchased by the blood of the Son of God as he bled to death on the cross and did it so perfectly that your sin was forgiven, Satan's power over you was broken, death was broken, your old rags are now covered up with beautiful clothes. Let me tell you what's cool about weddings, Number about being a bride. Number one, you're beautiful. I have personally conducted, I think, at least 250 weddings, and I've attended as a guest easily 250 more. I have never seen a homely bride. Every wedding has a beautiful bride. The bride always looks drop-dead gorgeous. You look gorgeous to God, no matter what kind of narrative is going on in your head, no matter how much self-loathing you have, how much shame you have, when you feel like a loser, all the failures that ricochet around, all your regrets that you wish you could fix but you can't, all the brokenness in your family that you'd like to apologize for and feel so stupid about, all the unfulfilled dreams as you age you realize ain't never going to happen. All of that narrative, I think people carry around a lot of trash in their head. God thinks you're gorgeous. He's as desirous of you as a groom for his beautiful bride. And when he sees you, he's put on you the oil of gladness instead of the ashes of mourning and despair. He's anointed you and you look good to him and smell good to him. And he can't wait to have you live in his house. Second, brides at weddings have the most expensive clothes of anybody, don't they? If you want to hear some horror stories, just ask around to some of the younger women and you'll find out the prices that are being charged for wedding dresses and you'll faint dead away. Uh, so next wedding you go to, uh, give an extra hug to the bride and slip her a 20 because uh, she's probably broke uh, after shelling out for that. That's part of the deal of the great feast in heaven is you are going to wear expensive clothes that, but that somebody else bought for you. Rejoice. Rejoice at that, that your ticket as it were, has been paid for and you don't, the pressure for you to have to pay it yourself has been taken off. You may just receive it as a gift. What does it say about the fine linen that is given to the believers to wear? That fine linen was given to us. Celebrate that the gospel gives it away. doesn't charge you. And finally, remember that weddings are fun. I have never been to a bad wedding reception. I suppose it's possible that some have, but I haven't ever seen it. What you and I are looking forward to is not just eight million billion zillion years of choir practice. I saw a cartoon once of a, a guy sitting, an angel sitting on, actually two, two guys, uh, sitting on a cloud together. 
and supposedly they're in heaven, and they got their little halos on, and one guy's holding his harp, and his buddy's sitting there looking like this. His buddy says, what's the matter? And he says, geez, I wish I'd brought a magazine. In other words, it's boring. Nothing to do but sit around in the clouds. That's ridiculous. You are going to enjoy heaven as much as you enjoy going to a wedding reception. A splendid cocktail hour with your best friends in all the world. A fabulous meal. Stories about your family of people you care about. And then a great dance where everybody has a blast. Getting to see people you haven't seen for a long time. And this grand reunion is waiting for us. And it's almost here. Blessed are you. Because you've been invited to that wedding. And as one of the stars of the show, as a bride of Christ himself, Come on, guys, let's man up and let's embrace that metaphor. It's awesome. When we get there, you'll see the coolness of it. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.